the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline on this rather cool evening January 19th, 2020. We are in the year 2020 and it is moving forward. We are two thirds through the month of January. So shortly we will be looking at our spring weather and then our summer weather. And uh, in the meanwhile, what you want to do is make sure that you continue to boost and build your immune system. Uh, We are slated to have uh, some cold weather, rainy weather continue for a season. And uh, we need to just be prudent about that, you know, just prudent. The strains of viruses are becoming very challenging these days. And uh, we need to just simply do all we can to build a shield of immunity as much as possible to maintain, preserve and sustain our joy and our peace and our happiness here in the Bay Area. You're listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan in the house. Uh, Glad to be with you. Uh, Had a wonderful weekend. I trust you did as well. And um, beautiful worship, beautiful worship. We are contemplating some things for the new year. Our body of uh, believers, moderately uh, sized church by God's uh, uh, mercy and goodness in Hayward. We are uh, eclectic. And uh, diverse in many ways, but centered around one radical reality, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, beginning and the end, the total, sufficient, saving revelation of the invisible God manifest to us in the gospel of redemption and salvation for those who believe on him. And uh, that's our message. That's our life. And he's our model and his word is our standard. And uh uh, fellowship and service to the true and the living God is what we've been called to do. This year's theme is Second Corinthians six one a. It is uh, derived at least from this statement: "We then, as workers together with God, we then as co-workers together with God, we are uh, contemplating for the year what it means to be collaborators with the true and the living God, as the people of God in all the various areas in which we might be found, being servants of the Most High God." So we're pressing home the uh, the need for us to push back up against uh, the innate sort of uh, sole proprietor business model that uh, we are also inclined to want to engage in in America, even though that model also requires significant levels of collaboration, if you will. But the sole proprietor model is a model where 
um, you're a one-man show, one-woman show, one-person show, if you will. And uh, you kind of do everything from the books to the work to the blessing of the economic remunerations, etc. But with God, he has always operated out of a plurality of collaboration. And that's what we have to get as the people of God. We will get more done when we are grounded in uh, one concrete reality and therefore moving in a direction of serving that one concrete reality called God according to his plan, purposes, and enterprise. If we are, again, if we are kind of just isolated, independent, autonomous, uh, that, that mode of operation is not biblical, it's not efficient, it's not God-glorifying, it's not modeled after Christ and the apostles. And I shared this with our congregation as I opened up for the new year, the theme that we want to deal with, the big picture, the big message that we want to embrace this year is uh, the idea that God, uh, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, has always operated in collaborations. You just don't see God by himself. Let us, first person plural, at least second, second person plural, let us uh, make man in our own image and in our own likeness. And uh, there you go. A uh, plurality of persons devising a plan by which mankind would enter into that collaborative objective and be a vehicle of expression of the glory of God in uh, the uh, Imago Dei, the Imago Dei. And so from that point, you go all the way through the Bible with God showing up and entering into people's lives and bringing them into collaboration with him all the way to the end of the Bible. Revelation twenty two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And whosoever is thirsty, let him come to the waters and drink. Uh, The spirit and the bride collaborate as the last covenant paradigm of which God is operating out of given to the church. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. The bride is the body of Christ. Men and women made up of every nation, ethnic group under heaven, drawn into this redemptive drama by the grace of God, power of the spirit and message of the gospel, and then become part of the body of Christ. And therefore you, if you're a child of God, you are called to collaborate with God, co-labor together with him. I call it the co-laboring nation. That is the body of Christ. And when people see you, they should know that you're up to something good, not bad, good. You are up to something purposeful, up to something God and up to something good. That's what we be, we should be called to doing. Spend all of your life being missional, purposeful, collaboring uh, with God in the uh, spread of his glory and the salvation of people, helping folks. Now, you and I can do that in so many ways. You do know that. Just so many ways that uh, we can um, uh, link arms with our Savior and uh, and help people. Um, I've got a story in front of me that really speaks to uh, what's kind of going on right now with this battle between uh, uh, our administration and Iran. And uh, and and it's a story that 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 we need to be reminded of because frequently here's one of the things that I, why I often say to you all. Do not get caught up in the haranguings of political uh, riffraff, political diatribes, political dialectics. Don't get caught up in that stuff because all it does is um, is actually blind you to certain realities that in that blindness will inhibit your capacity to actually continue to sustain a collaborative objective with God. For instance, uh, 
if somehow we want to buy into the notion that the plane in Ukraine was shot down by the Iranians because it was a direct response to what uh, President Trump has done in in the uh, elimination of that Iranian general, uh, then what? Do we want to do an eye for an eye, a tooth for two? Do we want to go bigger? Uh, President Trump had one man exterminated, uh, several uh, dozens of people, at least a hundred and something people died in that plane crash that is being attributed to a targeted attack by Iran as a response to Donald Trump. So what do you want to do, Christian? Do you want to get mad? Do you want to get vengeance? Do you want to get repay? Is this the big payback time? Do you believe that's righteousness? You believe it's the right thing to do. You believe that it's even remotely rooted in the gospel or the apostolic writings that you and I should be fomenting at the mouth for justice and vengeance against another nation in the name of Jesus. Is that really the case? And so what if we decided to do what Donald Trump said, the president said, you know, if he if he pushes us, we will we will retaliate in such a way as has never, ever been seen before. Words to that effect. Implicating nuclear war, obviously, he's not definitely going to just take a bunch of people and drop them on the ground and us have a uh, a war of 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 uh, of, of conflict between uh, human beings. The collateral damage would be devastating on both sides and perish the thought. I hope we are moving away from that kind of carnage that really is rooted in the madness and insanity of war. I hope we are. In any event, my exhortation to you is to warn you that while indeed, according to Revelation chapter six, a red horse is riding and a black horse follows the red horse and then a speckled and bay horse. In other words, war will continue, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, and famines will occur as a consequence of war because war devastates economies. And then death will occur because of famine, because when economies are devastated and people don't have resources, they die. But it all starts as a consequence of war. And do you want to be a warmonger? Do you want to always go around fighting somebody and particularly the uh, the political beast? Revelation 12, 13, et cetera, 17. Do you want to do that? Do you want to be known as the Christian that goes around killing people? Well, may I remind you that what's going on right along with the red, black and speckled and bay horse is the white horse at the top. All four of these horses are symbolic of movements, powerful movements. The horse represents power and war. The white horse represents the power of the gospel. Him who sits on it is Jesus Christ. His bow is a bow of conquering power rooted in the gospel message of the kingdom of God. And he said it in Matthew chapter 24. And this gospel shall be preached into all uh, in all the world. And then the end shall come. What does that mean? Simultaneously with wars, simultaneously with famine, simultaneously with death is never reported. But the fact is the gospel is riding triumphantly in every country where there is major conflict, major wars, major battles. This is how the people of God are to understand the providence of God in allowing conflicts, governing conflicts, uh, uh, managing conflicts amongst rebel human beings, because God is in control of that, too. All things are made by God, even the wicked for the day of evil. Behold, I create the light and I create the darkness. I create evil and I create good. I, the Lord, do all these things.
Uh, if there's evil in the city, have not the Lord done it? And we have to submit to the sovereignty of an inscrutably wise God whose uh, actions always work in relationship to his holiness and his justice. So we cannot condemn him with evil. What might be evil for you and I is nothing but righteousness for him. And he'll make that plain to all of us on that last day. But between then and now, here's what I want to share with you. Iran has people of God all over that place and has had people of God all over that place far longer than America has had. Iran has believing Christians all over Iran and has had them way longer than America. Obviously, you know, I'm speaking concerning the juxtaposition of of uh, chronology. Historically, Iran being bumped right up over against Babylon and therefore Palestine has heard the gospel way back when. In fact, we would surmise that it's, un, it's altogether logical that even before Christ came, many Christians were among the Persian Iranian uh, brothers and sisters who spoke Farsi as Daniel was one of the main culprits leading the uh, nation under which Darius was king and then Xerxes and Artaxerxes, etc. Uh, they definitely heard the gospel of the one true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ, from the three Hebrew boys, along with Daniel and every other believer from Nehemiah to Ezra to Esther, etc. True believers that we are to love. Now, the report is, is that Iran's church in uh, the church of God in Iran is a growing institution. A growing institution. Listen to this article by one Mark Howard. Growth amid persecution. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, 1999, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persia were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared that the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has occurred. Despite continued hostility from the late 90s and 70s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. Hear it again, child of God. The Iranians have become the Muslim people's most open to the gospel in the Middle East. Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iran, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel. How did this happen? Now watch what the author says. Two factors have contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. Sounds like real believers to me. Remember what Jesus said? In the world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Here's a real faith scenario where people will lose a lot for Christ's sake. And notice what we are hearing. The report is there is bread in Bethlehem. God has visited his people in Iran. As a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. 
1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands Some say more than one million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, you want to still blow up Iran? You want to still destroy that people group? Jonah? Is that what you want to do? Remember what God said to Jonah? There's more than 100,000 people that don't know their left hand from their right hand in that city, that great city, Nineveh, maybe more than that, the number. But I remember God plainly telling Jonah he doesn't even see correctly. God knew who his people were in Nineveh. And when Jonah actually went forth preaching the gospel, that whole nation turned to Christ. A vivid picture that's laid out in chapter 3. And then Jonah goes, sits on the mountainside and wait for God's judgment anyway, knowing that God was not going to judge them, but rather grant them grace and repentance unto life. And I would say unto you and me, with the good news of many people coming to Christ in Iran, do we want to squash that by wiping them out with bombs? The answer is God forbid. All right, the lines are open, one 367 one All the lines open, taking Bible questions, taking uh, counseling questions, taking uh, um, uh, arg- uh, not arguments, but rather observations about what's going on in your world. I don't mind arguments as well, but you might have something that you want to put bring to the table for us to discuss. I will be talking to you about the importance of standing your ground around gender pronouns. The importance of you and I walking in the reality of what actually is factually and biologically essential to us being able to concretely affirm what truth is and how uh, we're starting to win that battle as well. See, for a while, the enemy is, appears to be winning, and particularly through the media, when he tells us about how many people are becoming this and how many people are becoming that and how many polls are showing that 60 percent and 70 percent of the people are kind of now settling down with the fact of, of the gay and lesbian and bi and trans and all of that kind of stuff going on. Well, we don't quite know if all that's true. Here's what we do know is that God graces humanity to push back against things that after a while become obviously absurd. And I want to help you, Christian, be able to arm yourself to be able to deal with these kinds of arguments when they come up in your home as well. The Monday edition of Lifeline. All four lines are open. one 367 We'll pay some bills and then we'll come right back after this break. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back. The time, 530. I've got two lines open, one 367 Two lines open, 1-888-367-5329. Let me go to line number one and talk with um, Sean in Redland. Sean, are you there? I'm here. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Pastor? Great. What's your question, thoughts, comments, observations, etc.? Um. I had a, I had a question. Uh, I I spoke to you about a month ago and uh, about uh, family worship and mm-hmm. um, how we were we were planning on doing it more as a family and everything. Right. And we started about two months ago. Are you are you moving, Sean? Are you are you walking? Time, kind of Sean. Two months. Sean. Yes, sir. Are you walking or moving? 
I'm driving my car. Okay. Turn my. Am I echoing? You're not echoing, but you were breaking up on me. I was losing parts of your sentence. You are clear now, okay. so you can try to get your get your question and revisit uh, your statement, please. Okay, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so so basically, we we've been doing family worship for about two months now, and mm-hmm. we've been aiming to do it just about every night, and it's been a blessing. But but I've been having a lot of struggles with it just because my kids are really young. And I got I got four of them, so I was just calling to ask. I know you have a lot of kids, and you raise them. They're all out of the house. And uh, just if you can perhaps give us some practical tips on how to do it, especially with young kids. Um, my children range from I got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. So trying to you know keep it keep it at a certain time limit and uh, keep them keep them um, attentive and everything. It's just a struggle. Sure. And so we have really good nights, really bad nights. Sure. Where it's like, oh, you just want to pull your hair out, and, and it's very hard. So um, just maybe some tips on Absolutely. on how you did it. Yep. I'm, I'm going to shoot before I let you go. Um, okay. Thank right. You. First of all, it's a, it's a noble task that has great benefits to do devotions with your kids very early on. Do not, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking in general editorially on, on the larger scope here. Sean, this is not directed at you. Ladies and gentlemen, do not wait until your kids are 8, 10, 11, 12 years old to start devotions. Just don't do it. They will not connect with you in any substantial way uh, in the norm, in the norm. Start early because when you start early, they have a lot of room in their brains, in their beautiful, tiny brains to be able to store the data of the experience of the experience. I want to talk about that in a moment to store the data of the experience of devotion in the mind uh, because they're they're in a mode of just gathering data. That's easy for them to do. Uh, they will not necessarily look like they are gathering data, particularly if you are um, not real wise in how to do devotions with the kids. Like if you do devotions with the kids when they are uh, in a um, a mode of agitation, if they are sleepy, if they are irritated, if they are hungry, you have to be prudent about when to do the devotion. You and your wife have to collaborate, 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 collaborate. That's what God has called us to. As to what is the most the most appropriate time to sit them around and open the Bible and start to read to them. That's the first thing you want to be able to agree with. Secondly, you want to be honest about the time frame of effective devotion, meaning for kids six and under, about the longest that I would go is 15 minutes. And I only say that because you could go longer depending upon how engaged the kids are. When our kids were growing up, uh, I, myself, and my wife, many of our devotional times were wonderful because our kids were engaging. They were engaging. We were catechizing them around the memorization of Bible verses. They will say that I was somewhat uh, over the top and radical and uh, one of those kind of fastidious school teaching dads uh, that would have them, you know, memorize the whole of Psalm 119. (laughs) But they were able to do it over periods of time. We would do whole divisions of Psalm 119. But that was because of 
the, the, the their ages allowed them to put that in their data bank. Secondly, um, we were re- we were frequent enough in our devotion with them that they looked forward to the challenge of remembering the first division of Psalms 119. Uh, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. They also do no iniquity for they seek thy precepts and on and on and on. At that point, what they're also doing is challenging one another. But you guys have to know the dynamic, Sean, of your um, of your kids interaction as well. The third critical thing about that period of devotional time that you want to do, which I wasn't as good as good at then as I would be now. And that is a, a dynamic of, of, of sharing the word, having them to repeat the word audibly with you and them. And then you simplifying the explanation of that and then making application, draw out application that is at their level and within the framework of their experience so that they feel like what's happening with you and mom and them is legitimate communion, legitimate communion. It it should not feel merely like a classroom setting in which is time for them to learn something, but rather that they get to engage you, engage mom and dad. They get to share. They get to posit. They get to deposit. They get to deconstruct. They get to set forth their interpretation and their views. That's what you want to do. And their views have to be held as legitimate, even if they're not accurate, because what we want to teach them to do is excogitate dialogue with you the way I do it with my church and I'm still having a hard time with the kids in my church. I'm talking about grown people um, is what is called expository listening. We all know what expository preaching and expository teaching is. But at my church, at our church, I teach expository listening. What that means is I really demand my adults after our study. In many cases, I pull out the microphones and we do a Q&A and I ask them to respond to what they heard right then and there, because that's the only way you can really know for yourself or for them that they got it. Because most people listen passively. Most people do not listen actively. They listen passively. And when you listen passively, you do not necessarily acquire all of the wealth and worth of that experience. Finally, I want to repeat this. Um, the infrequency or different times and all of that is perfectly fine. Uh, as I'm working with our prayer group, we're in a 90 day prayer period and we've got about seven days to go. Let's see here. Yep. Eight days to go um, before our prayer time is up. And I talk about flexibility in prayer. Well, you have to have flexibility in devotions as well. Flexibility, meaning that you might be doing devotions in the kid's bedroom. You might do it at the dinner table. You might do it in the living room, dining room. You may do it in the car when you're headed somewhere. Let devotions be impromptu based upon the desire to simply commune with the kids around the word of God. Be careful not to be trapped by formality. Being trapped by formality can kill your good motive and destroy your good desires. You really want to understand who you are as Sean and his wife's family and how the dynamic of your family can be um, used to integrate devotion into it. So I'm going to encourage you to uh, work with your wife to strategize a more dynamic, a more uh, um, a more organic 
and definitely a much more informal or flexible way of doing devotion to get that word into the kids about who God is. I want to encourage you with that word, and then I'd love to hear back from you maybe in a couple months. Bless you. I got to take a break. Two lines open. In fact, three lines open. one 367 I commend Sean greatly for training his kids up in the gospel and the word of God now because it will help them deal with the battle that will be absolutely formidable in the years to come, of which I'm going to talk about here in a moment when I deal with gender issues on this Monday edition of Lifeline. Three lines open, one 367 I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. The time, 544 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let's see here. Let's go to line number two and talk with Dan in Sonoma. Hello. Um, I've seen a a news item in, on Bloomberg, and uh, we could pay attention to that for the reasons that uh, it's pretty much everywhere, ubiquitous, and it's also something that would be difficult to do anything about, probably necessary to know about, at minimum, to know about it and maybe do something about it. It's that uh, rural hospitals are becoming bankrupt, and they were saying the reason um, many times... Fewer people live in those rural areas because they're moving to the city, and so they're not going to the hospital there, and the government-mandated payments are not adequate to keep the hospital open. So a lot of rural hospitals are going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And that would mean, let's say you live an hour from the hospital that closes, it might be a lot further to travel to a hospital that is actually open. Right. And this could create uh, quite a problem. In our community out here, the uh, prenatal ward closed. Mm -hmm. So people are going to have to either have their birth at home or go to another hospital to have the child. True. I don't know what you would have to say about it, but I think we just make the note that that issue is there. And uh, Uh, There are many things like that, Dan, that are going on that at some point our... um, second level viewing of our uh, surroundings and our environment will come into play. There's a viewing or a perspective on the part of Americans at present. That's largely the perspective of distraction perspective of, uh, of uh, being uh, preoccupied with other matters that don't really um, allow a clarity of, uh, of perspective relative to um, many uh, critically important things that uh, at a certain at a given time in a person's life just don't come to bear as respond as important until they are gone or until we need them. Uh, one of which is, uh, as you're stating, hospitals. Um, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we have been so dismal in California with our budget, our financial budget for decades, is that we we're we're really a shell of uh, of a state in terms of the ability to actually pay for all of our social services. We just we can't do it. Homelessness is a massive problem in California, as you know, and it becomes an indicator of a lopsided economic uh, uh, disparity uh, or impropriety, if you will, when it comes to our government. It's 
apparent to me, Dan, that we are on the brink of uh, a, a major uh, multifaceted crisis in terms of uh, California prosperity. Uh, yeah, there will be areas in which. Uh, people who are well-to-do can indeed uh, have the resources that they want in terms of all of these amenities. I mean, any province, any municipality, any uh, uh, ha- a halfway decent city that's taking care of its own resources can do it. I could just think of a dozen of them here in the Bay Area in which I live where these possibilities exist. But where what you're talking about is happening all over the nation, but it's happening as well here in California. And what's happening, Dan, is that we are moving back into a second world status and in some cases a third world status, which for our beloved brothers and sisters in those contexts, it's normal that they have to drive an hour or two to the nearest hospital or the nearest clinic because they live out in the boonies or they live in places where those resources are not available to them. This is the, um, this is the reality of many parts of our, our world period. As you know, if you live in a third world country, uh, if you don't have a level of self-sufficiency to be able to provide for yourself, even in emergency situations, if you are not a police, if you don't have the law enforcement element in your own home, if you don't have the, uh, you know, fire department resources in your own home, hospital emergency aid elements in your own home and many other things, and you are, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, ill-equipped to deal with those events once they occur. But lots of parts of our country um, are in those kind of situations. So what you're talking about on a local level, my brother, yes, it could occur. Uh, and it is occurring. And it will occur. And I don't really see how we can fix that where uh, – you know, individuals collectively can come in and, and try to stop it. Unless, of course, like I stated, uh, cities that are well-to-do and extremely involved in their municipality, extremely involved in city ordinances and city uh, strategies and plans about having this or that. And you, you, we have them. Castro Valley has it. Moraga has it. Uh, many cities uh, that are, again, uh, self-sufficiently and politically involved have the ability to to uh, uh, develop legislation and policies by which they make sure that they maintain those kinds of resources. But when the money dries up, as it's doing in Washington on so many levels, drying up, meaning that they are wasting our money, uh, certain cities will find themselves um, suffering the consequences thereof. Uh, Prayer, uh, you know, a measure of activism, if one wants to get involved in those sorts of things, uh, is, is, is a way to go about it. But I'm not so sure that what's really going on, Dan, is anything more than uh, God and his providence kind of uh, lo- uh, leveling uh, the playing field because we have mismanaged our stewardship for so long in California, man, for so long that uh, there has to be a readjustment of our geographical uh, amenities. I'll give you the last word. Yes, yes sir. And uh, it also reflects uh, very poor governmental policies. And I, I just saw another article about these uh, ICE uh, complaining that People with uh, felony convictions and uh, strangulations and uh, other kind of thing like that are being released by some of the cities. And you you don't want to uh, have a bunch of uh, felons running around uh, wild. We already um, do. 
We already do. I, I, I'm with you. I, you know, I, I read a lot of this stuff all the time. I don't bring it to the f- forefront of our show on Monday because I like to try to maintain a, a very strong, you know, equanimity around around uh, spiritual and biblical matters. But here we are. These things that you're talking about. They're here. They're here. They're in Texas. They're on the East Coast. Uh, it, it is a uh, a type of crisis in that particular pers- uh, perspective and context as well, Dan, that a lot of criminal elements are making their way into our state because of bad policy, bad worldviews, bad epistemology, just bad legislation altogether. There is a mythical uh, uh, understanding on the part of the liberal mindset that is contrary to the word of God relative to anthropology, human nature, uh, that uh, that defies logic when you look at the evidence. And there's just no way around it but experiencing the consequences of blind leaders uh, promoting blind policies and suffering the endangerment of societies, which will drive us into modes of self-preservation that uh, will, re- will require some understanding as to why we would end up arming ourselves in order to protect that which is ours from the kind of anticipated uh, accostment that would occur with people who are unprincipled of which you are speaking. Uh, Something to be prayed about, my dear brother. Thank you. I got to take a break. One triple. Okay. Can I? Good. All right. Let me go then to line number one and uh, talk with uh, Misty in San Francisco. Misty, what's your question, comment, observation, or such? Hi. Uh, well, I had two thoughts. Um, one of them, I believe that life and all we're going through, I believe it is a war. We're dealing with a spiritual battle all day, every day. So that's just that's part and parcel of, of the Christian walk. And True. I don't think a lot of people really realize that, you know. They're sitting there watching TV or just kind of relaxing, and, and that's not my life. It's pretty unfortunate, but it is how it is. It is. And... And, uh, you know, it's exhausting. But anyway, uh, the other point is, I'm going to go back to a point that I've made before. It's a new year. I know sometimes things just don't change because the world is how it is and uh, systems are in place. Mm -hmm. But I do think when we're talking about, uh, for example, the guy that called in and he wanted advice in reference to how to school his uh, children and how to bring them into those things. I think vocabulary and how we communicate is really important. And I think still taking taking things down uh, a notch from the way that you communicate is where you need to go. Because if you're having troubles with your church in the listening department, it's because a lot of, I mean, I listen deeply and I listen for a long time. But it goes kind of on and on and on. And I could summarize what you've said so much more concisely. I mean, I would have just said to this guy, look, you want to have bonding moments with your kids. You want to change your environment at times to keep things interesting and to also bring other things into play. You want to have a connection that's warm, that is filled with uh, sort of uh, love and comfort and a connection, not just a schooling environment. It's just a matter of how uh, you're speaking, and I really do think that it is it is going to be a problem in the long run. I, I think it it, uh, it pushes people away. You know, you're going to get callers, you're going to call and say, oh, I love you, Jessica, I think everything you're doing is great, I think everything is perfect, everything, and then it just validates you. But I honestly think to bring more people into the kingdom and to speak just concisely without 20,000 big words that go round and round in circles, 
there's something in your in your um, makeup that needs to use those words. I think there's a pride issue involved with it, and I just want to uh, encourage you to look into that, and uh, I think it will be helpful to other people. Thank you for your call. Let's see here. Am I good for one more call? All right, let's go to line number three and talk with Brother B from the East Bay. Brother B. Hey, how you doing, Pastor? This is uh, Brother Buchanan, and uh, I just want to say all glory to our Lord and Savior. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've, I've, uh, I wanted you, I love I love the way that you impact, impact the Word, and I just wanted you to go into a little bit the Mago Day and the Shekinah glory of God. And uh-huh. I was just thinking here, as you talk about the Middle East, uh-huh. and I know uh, United States, I think we really have <laughs> the Shekinah with us, and we... um. We might lose it if we start bombing other countries. And another thing, I wanted you to maybe mm. bring it back around circle with with the uh, the Mago Day, how we just underestimate the uh, Holy Spirit and how we need to collaborate with Him on some of this stuff. Being that it's a spiritual war that we're in, and instead of just sit back and be relaxed, how everyone just goes into conservative mode. I just wanted you to unpack some stuff because I, I love the way that you you. Uh, you bring the word, and I just—I see you as a leader, and I know that you—you uh, you have this stuff for us. Yeah, uh, all three of those categories that you're talking about are extremely important. Uh, the Imago Day—that would be a big word that that uh, Misty would want me to break down and make simple, but I really can't because it's a Latin concept that actually. Uh, bridges a gap between the East and the West. And it's a beautiful term. And, and you can find uh, Gen Xers using it, uh, Gen Zers, and all kind of people using Imago Dei, uh, simply because what we are referring to is the image of God in us. And I, I think, uh, uh, Brother B, that in relationship to the Imago Dei, the image of God in us as human beings, if we were operating out of a greater sense of realizing that that fact, the quality of human beings at the level of nature. Uh, this is another term. It's called ontological. That's going to be a little bit too offensive for Misty, but it's important for us to understand these categories that we are all created in the image of God and we have equality of nature. And as such, the idea, and I talked about this in my last program, that you and I as a believer would facilitate agreement with um, our government to destroy anyone, any any eternity-bound soul. For us as believers to be comfortable with the destruction of any eternity-bound soul is a betrayal of our very purpose for existing. Uh, The Bible is fundamentally clear, clear that Christ came that we might have life and that more abundantly, and that the people of God in their existence to collaborate with Jesus Christ, if that's what we are, then we are to be promoters of life. And to be a promoter of life, we got to be a promoter of God and a promoter of righteousness, a promoter of peace, and all of those qualities that are essential to cultivating a life environment. I think... um, I think you fully uh, I think you fully understand that that first point in that first category relative to uh, to to wanting to see what happens uh, in relationship to the people of God all over the world, whether it's Iran or whether it's Pakistan or whether it's Afghanistan or whether it's the Palestinian, as I was sharing with our flock on Sunday. The notion that we would want to categorize different ethnic groups as superior or inferior uh, is an uh, 
uh, untenable position uh, in terms of believers uh, re uh, re uh, you know as a storing restoring if you will this whole concept of apartheid. Forget apartheid. Um, the Bible is very clear that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what we need for the remedy is God's glory. Secondly, as you were talking about the idea of the Shekinah being present with us in America, um, while the Shekinah is a term, Shekinah, that we use frequently in the world of theology and folks who really are close to uh, the pneumatos or spiritual things use, the word Shekinah is not really a biblical term. It's just not. The, uh, the Chabod is. Chabod. That's the Hebrew term for the manifest glory of God that came down uh, on the temple and resided in the uh, midst of the Ark of the Covenant. God's Chabod, his, his honor, his weight, his splendor, his beauty, his fullness. That's the existential manifestation of the invisible God. And that, that glory, this is the New Testament term, doxa, that glory, every true believer has in him and therefore if america uh, uh brother b is a christian nation and we could argue that tenant but if america is dominated by healthy vital true believers then the glory of god is with us and i would agree with you 100 percent that if somehow we fully collapse into this model of uh militant uh political uh, uh, Christianity, uh, so much so that, you know, we've already seen it with Catholicism and we've seen it with Islam. Um, if we collapse into a kind of militant model of Christianity in a desperate attempt at trying to save America uh, from itself, essentially, because our destruction is really our own. It's nobody else. No enemy on the outside can destroy us. It's the enemy within, as Michael Savage has said so many times. Uh, yeah, man, the, the glory of God, the, the glory of God will leave. If uh, if 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 in fact we abandon dependence upon him and the modes of ministry manifestation to which we are called, you are right. We are dealing with a spiritual war. That's very much the case. And therefore, prayer and uh, proclamation and practice of good works are essential. Uh, being people of legitimate, authentic, genuine, sincere prayer, being people who know the word of God deeply and profoundly and are committed to its exposition and preaching and, and teaching. And then thirdly, being people who are orthopraxed in their conduct, loving people and serving people and engaging people. All of that is essential to um to um us having God's favor retained in America and it's here it's here but God is blessing the body of Christ too across the world whether it's in China Asia if you will uh whether it's in India whether it's in Africa whether it's in Iran whether it's in uh in Israel in Palestine because again it's only politics that creates the kind of uh, synthetic divides that result in Christians actually um, holding to views that contradict their own calling. The reality is the white horse of the gospel has been riding successfully since Jesus went back to heaven and sent the Holy Ghost here. And if our ears are opened up uh, wide enough and if our eyes are clear enough in their view, we can see where works of grace are occurring and uh, prosperity of the soul and unity of the body and, and a furtherance of the gospel is actually taking place in Jesus name. We can see it. So I want to encourage you, brother, to keep thinking on those things. Keep growing your 
yourself this year. Uh, keep collaborating with God right along with me and everybody else and, and touch people wherever you go. God will bless you to that end. And uh, I'm going to take a hard break now when I come back. Um, all three, all four lines open. One triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I will be talking about when we come back ontologically epistemological categories with regards to the gender conflict and uh, dilemma that's existing in our world. I know you don't necessarily understand what that means, but I'll explain it on the other side of the break. Don't you go anywhere. <laughs> 